What's up, skeptics? Welcome to another episode of Reason to Doubt, your source for all things skeptical. I'm Jordan. With me is Jared and our special guest, Tim O'Neill. How's it going, Tim? Hey, very good. Thank you. So today we are going to be talking about Jesus mythicism. Uh, specifically, we're going to be talking about the works of David Fitzgerald, which we uh, we interviewed him on this channel a while back. And Tim uh, said he was going to watch and and take some notes and let us know what we got wrong and, <laughs> and what David got wrong. So, <laughs> so uh, super excited for that. Before we dive in, though, Tim, why don't you uh, tell the viewers who you are? Sure. Um, so I'm the author of History for Atheists, which is a website I started a few years ago uh, to address some of the things I think uh, um, our fellow atheists can get wrong about history. I think a lot of arguments that uh, that are made by, by some atheists, and obviously I'm not criticising all atheists here, um, are based on misunderstandings of history, uh, misunderstandings of how history works, how, how we actually analyse it, and also some myths. So, you know, things like, you know, Christians burned down the Great Library of Alexandria. Well, that didn't actually happen. But it's something, these, these are some of these, these myths that, that people refer to. And I try to explain why they're myths and, and, and try to, I suppose, curate uh, information by actual historians. I'm not one. I'm a hobbyist. Uh, I do have a, a, a background in, in the study of history, particularly ancient and medieval history, uh, but I don't claim to be presenting my my own research. I'm, I'm uh, presenting what, what actual historians are saying. And one of the, I suppose, one of the topics that, uh, that I, I tackle in, in some detail uh, on my side is Jesus' mythicism um, because I have studied the origins of Christianity for many years. Uh, I try and keep up with the, the scholarship on, the, on that topic. And uh, I came across Jesus' mythicism for the first time like many years ago when I was in my late teens, thought, you know, this is an interesting idea. And uh, But the more I looked at it, the less convincing I found it. Back then, though, that was back in the 80s because, you know, I'm quite old. Um, back then it wasn't a, a prominent uh, thing at all. It was, it was largely considered to be something that people had looked at back in the early 20th century. Um, but more recently it, it has popped up, particularly online, uh, and is accepted by a, a quite, quite a large proportion of it. So I see a, a, an online um, survey about, about this topic. I see a, a good sort of 20 or 30% of, of atheists give it credence, and, and that is directly out of proportion to the number of actual scholars who give it credence. Now, I'm not making an argument from authority. Um, I'm not saying we should... Uh, we should accept that Jesus probably did exist because scholars do. Um, but when you've got a very large number of scholars from all kinds of backgrounds, not just Christian, you know, also Jewish and atheistic um, scholars who, who do accept it, then you, you probably should wonder, well, why do they not find Jesus' mythicism convincing, whereas people like David Fitzgerald, your, your, your previous guest, uh, clearly do. So that's kind of what I suppose I'm, I'm trying to explain in, in a series of articles that I've been writing over a number of years on mythicism. And hopefully, in the course of our conversation, I can give some indication as to why uh, it's not a well-regarded theory among, uh, among, among most scholars. There are a handful, and we, we know their names because there's only a handful of them. Um, but you, know, you, you can find a handful of, of contrarians and mavericks on pretty much any topic in any field. So, um, yeah, that's, that's sort of me and my background. I appreciate that. I was going to say, um, 
one thing that I find fascinating too is um, I sort of lump atheist and skeptic into the same group in my mind, but I know that's not true. And I sort of just cringe whenever I hear atheists making some of these unfounded uh, claims or, or, you know, spouting off some of this. It's almost like conspiracy stuff on the internet when it comes to mythicism. So I don't know if you have any similar experiences with that. What I, what I certainly have found is that um, some of the people who, who find mythicism convincing are quite zealous about it. it they have this almost <laughs> evangelical zeal. And, it, and I, I suspect um, that, that that has got something to do with the fact that many of them come from a fundamentalist Christian background and, and they seem to have, you know, this is not the case in all cases at all, but in many cases they, they seem to have kind of replaced one type of zealous belief with another uh, because they get quite they get very angry with me and, and you know, I've had people, <laughs> yeah. they send me hate mail and I've had people abuse me and stuff, which is all very weird. You know. I've been told I'm a secret Christian that, oh, uh, yeah. you yeah, know, I'm, I'm clearly not an atheist because I accept that Jesus might have existed. If I happen to mention it, I often get angry replies demanding that I explain how Jesus walked on water and stuff like yeah. that. Yeah. Uh, it was funny, though, you mentioned the percentages. I was on Truth Wanted recently, which is like uh, the atheist community of Austin, one of their shows, and they did a poll while I was on whether or not Jesus existed. And in their audience, 80% said Jesus did not exist. Now, wow. that's not a representative sample, but that yeah. kind of gives you a, a feeling for how prevalent this is in some circles. And, uh, the, the, the difficulty here, though, is that many people conflate Jesus, the Jesus of history, so the historical Jesus, with the Jesus of faith. And that's why you hear people say, well, if you believe Jesus existed, why, you know, do you believe he, he did all the miraculous stuff? And well, no, you know, I'm talking about a Jewish preacher, apocalyptic preacher of the first century. But when, when you ask the question, did Jesus exist? I, I strongly suspect that many people are thinking of the Jesus of the Gospels and, and have a great deal of difficulty disentangling him from, uh, from the Jesus that we're, that we're going to be talking about today. Because obviously I don't believe that he rose from the dead or walked on water or did any of those things. But yeah, yeah. If, but I, if I, think, I believe yeah, that, I'd be a Christian. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, but I, I think it's interesting the way the question gets framed because the question is, did he exist? And and what I find is that mythicists tend to frame it that way because because in many it's the obvious way to ask the question. But I think in many respects it, it kind of plays to the strengths, if you can call them that, of, of the mythicist position because they can sort of say, well, let's look at how flimsy the evidence is. Let's look at how little evidence there is. And that's, that's quite true. You know, how, let's look at how few references there are outside of the Gospels to this guy. And then let's look at, at you know, some of these, these pieces of evidence that might, you know, we, we can make an argument were interpolations or, or forgeries. There's a couple of those. They, they multiply those uh, because that suits their argument. I think a better way to frame the question is to ask, how did Christianity begin? Because once you do that, then this actually sort of puts a, a, a different kind of, of light on, on both the, the um, historical Jesus argument and the mythicist argument. And the mythicist argument comes out looking worse once you, once you reframe the question that way. Because on one side, we have a number of sources, both Christian and non-Christian, from the first you know, couple of centuries of, uh, of, of, the, of the common era, which all say the same thing. They all say that there was a dude. That was the origin of Christianity. There was this guy, Jesus. 
Now, the Christian ones obviously make a whole lot of claims that the non-Christian ones don't um, about him being the Messiah, about him being having miraculous powers, about him rising from the dead, and eventually about him being God. The non-Christian ones don't make those claims. They say he was a fraud, a charlatan, a magician, um, a heretic, but they all say that he existed and that he was the point of origin for the, the sect that eventually grew into the religion that we see today. Now, that doesn't mean that happened, but what it does mean is that there is a reasonably solid uh, prima facie case that the reason we have all of these sources saying the same thing is that there actually was a guy. Right? So that, that, that's on one side. So what mythicism has to do is it has to come up with an alternative explanation for the origins of Christianity, for the beginning of Christianity, that accounts for all that evidence and does so better in a more parsimonious and more convincing way than there was a dude, which is a pretty simple uh, and, and reasonably clear uh, answer to how did it begin. And the problem that I have with mythicism is that it, it does that by creating a kind of a layer cake of suppositions. You know, imagine that there was a, uh, a proto-Christianity proto that believed in a purely celestial Jesus uh, and not a, not a historical one. And then imagine they started telling allegorical stories about him doing stuff that, that he did in the heavens, according to this, this form of mythicism, getting born, getting crucified, rising from the dead. They started telling stories about that on earth. Imagine they, they decided to set those stories not thousands of years ago, hundreds of years ago or in prehistory, but just a few decades ago. And then imagine that there were some people who, uh, who came to believe that those stories were true and that all this stuff had actually happened a few decades ago on Earth. Then imagine that the first form of Christianity, the one that had the purely celestial Jesus, um, died out somehow. And, and then imagine that the other form, the historical uh, Jesus form, decided not to do what they did with all the other heretical forms of their faith, and actually preserve their teachings so they could argue against them, but decided instead with this one not to do that and then to wipe out all trace that this proto-form of Christianity existed. Now, I've forgotten how many times I just said imagine. It's about <laughs> seven or eight lines of supposition. <laughs> and, and the problem is Occam's razor is a key tool in historical analysis. When you put that pile of suppositions with the cherry of mythicism on, you know, on, on top of it, next to there was a dude, it's pretty clear which one seems to make, before you even get into the technical arguments that we're about to discuss, it's pretty clear which one seems to make more sense. So yeah, I think if, when you frame it that way, you can sort of see that mythicism is, it, it's kind of a house of cards. The conditional probability goes down the more conditions you require, right? Like Because exactly. if any one of those layers falls, the whole theory is destroyed. So yeah. your probability space is just getting smaller and smaller and smaller. So you really need exceptional evidence to overcome that which a priori. Is, yeah. Which is interesting considering that one of the main proponents of this is somebody who believes in Bayesian uh, reasoning, right? Um, which I was going to ask Tim about in your research with this, um, sort of this sort of like proto Christianity, you know, Jesus in the sky kind of thing. Did you see this prominent before Richard Carrier came on the scene or was he one of the biggest sort of proponents of this sort of um, idea of like these imagining ifs kind of scenarios? Yeah, he's, he's certainly been his it, biggest evangelist. Um, it, it was, it, it's been around for quite a while because mm -hmm. uh, Jesus' mythicism has been around for like well over a century. Um, first, you know, first mythicists were in the 18th century. 
Uh, but but there was a guy called Earl Doherty. I don't know if he's still around. He was getting quite old a few years ago, and I haven't seen anything from him for quite a while, so he may not be with us anymore. Canadian writer who put together a website in the 90s called The Jesus Puzzle, and he used to pop up. You know, I've, I've uh, encountered him several times online in uh, on Usenet groups in the 90s, and then he, he self-published a book, a couple of books, and Carrier... Uh, reviewed his book and pointed out some pretty clear flaws in it, but seemed to take that as a challenge to come up with a better version of Doherty's theory, which is pretty much where his his book on the historicity of Jesus uh, came from. So effectively what Carrier has done is taken pretty much taken Doherty's arguments and then tried to, to steel man them as much as he possibly could because he liked the conclusion. He just didn't think that Doherty did a great job on, on a number of points. So, yeah, the, before that, the, it was more kind of the New Age, uh, Acharya S, zeitgeist type mythicism that was around, which was, you know, Jesus was just pagan, God's rebadged, which is still around. But I think most atheists find that a little bit loopy. Um, and I think they, they kind of prefer the, uh, the, the let's say, the, um, the trappings of intellectual rigor that people like Carrier give to, give to mythicism. I have to say my first exposure to like researching Jesus's life at all was Richard Carrier's book and having absolutely no background. It sounded very compelling. I was, you know, it's like, he sounds very erudite and everything. I was like, huh. And then at the end, because I'm a skeptic, I was like, I wonder why no experts are convinced. And then I went and read the experts and I was (laughs) like, oh, this is why, you know? (laughs) And and, and it's interesting you say that, Jordan, because, one of the things that people find baffling about about you know, why do the, the experts not not uh, not like it is, it is it looks at first blush it looks pretty 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 reasonable it all kind of hangs together he's got an answer to everything you know fringe theorists always do and, and he's got all the trappings as I said you know it's got, I've had people say to me but but his book has lots of footnotes it's like okay. <laughs> <laughs> he does have a lot of footnotes. I can say that. Absolutely. There's some pages that are just nothing but footnotes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it's it's quite fun sometimes to follow those footnotes and see they don't actually back up what he's saying. But anyway, um, but, so, uh, but I think this is what this is what people people will deal with. It looks at first blush that like a like a, a a very reasonable theory. It's not until you you really kind of get into the technical detail that you start the whole thing starts to fall apart. You see, it's all smoke and mirrors. But, yeah, we'll, we'll get on to that when we start talking about Fitzgerald's arguments. Why don't we do that right now? Let's sure. dive into uh, what Fitzgerald had to say. So, uh, like we said, we talked to David uh, about his book and Jesus Mythicism a couple weeks ago. You can go check out that past uh, interview if you want to see David make the case himself. Yeah. Uh, but what did you think of uh, what David had to say and what his book has to say? Sure. Um, well, I, I read his book when it first came out, um, and – uh, Amazon, uh, I can blame Amazon for that. They, uh, uh, they, they recommended it to me, and I thought, okay, well, let me have a look at this. So uh, that was 2010. I wrote a review uh, of it on my, my former blog, Amarium Magnum, and it wasn't a particularly kindly review. I thought the book, I, I, I think the book's pretty bad. Um, and and he didn't like my review at all and <laughs> wrote a response, and I, I wrote a reply to his response. So, you know, I've got a bit of, I suppose, a bit of a, a history with uh, with David. Um, I, I, don't, I don't find his arguments at all compelling. I, essentially what he's doing is he's kind of taking arguments by Robert Price, who's, you know, with Carrier is probably the only other kind of real 
qualified scholar who who argues this stuff, uh, and 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 Carrier's arguments because he's friends with Carrier, and, and is is kind of packaging them up uh, for a a more general audience. The, part of the problem that I have with David is uh, is he he actually uh, he actually simplifies the arguments to the point where he actually get he, he makes errors of fact, and I'll talk about some of these in a moment, which Carrier doesn't do. Carrier's a very clever man. And Carrier is actually pretty good at, at avoiding, you know, flat-out errors. Some of his arguments, most of his arguments, are pretty contrived and unconvincing. But at least he doesn't get things wrong, uh, whereas Fitzgerald does. Right. So if we if we kind of start off with one of his earlier arguments, he was talking about how he finds the some of the of the verses that he that are used uh, to to indicate that that there was a historical Jesus. He finds them a little bit weird, and he, he mentions one in particular, which was. Um, in Galatians 4.4, 4, where, where uh, Paul says that Jesus was born of a woman. What he actually says is born of a woman, born under the law. So what he's saying there is he was a Jewish man. Born under the law is a reference to the Jewish law, the Torah. And the whole of Galatians is an argument about whether or not you need to follow the Jewish law in order to be saved. And, and Paul is arguing vigorously that you don't. And this is, this is something that uh, is very important to him. And Fitzgerald says, well, look, this is weird. Why would he say born of a woman? Now, that's a very strange thing to say. And if you don't actually understand the material you're dealing with, it probably does sound kind of weird, except born of a woman is actually a very common Jewish phrase. We, we find it all the way through uh, a whole lot of, of uh, the Old Testament. Uh, we find it, in, um, we find it in, in, uh, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, and we also find it a couple of times in uh, it mentions uh, by um, uh, in in the the Gospels, what "born of a woman" means is it's a it's a Jewish phrase, meaning um, or, or emphasising someone's humanity. So you could I could say, well, Jared, why did you eat the last piece of chocolate cake? And you could reply using this phrase, saying, "I am but one born of a woman." You basically say, "I'm only human." Or yeah. I could say, you know, of of all those born of woman. Uh, Jordan has the most amazing bow ties, um, and what I'm saying there is, you know, out of everyone, because everyone's it's, it's kind of a poetic way of emphasising someone's humanity or their or the or their or their place within humanity. So what Paul is using it for here is to emphasise that Jesus was, apart from everything else he thought he was, was a, a Jewish man, and he was he was like us. He was one born of a woman. He was like us. That's kind of what he's saying. Um, and, but Fitzgerald, when he was sort of talking about how this is weird, and it's not weird. It's just that Fitzgerald doesn't understand everything I just said because he's not familiar with the material. But he also said, well, he doesn't say he was born of a woman. He says that he was made. And, and that's just wrong. That's not true. The, the verb is uh, genomenon, which is a form of the, of the verb um, genomai. And it means to come to pass, to come to be. It's a very broad verb, commonly used in, in Greek using a whole range of different meanings, including being born. So we've got several examples of it, of it being used in that way. In, uh, in Genesis, for example, it's used several times. We find it in, in Josephus. We also find it in Plato's Republic, uh, in the life of Thucydides. There's, this, is, this is a phrase that is sometimes used to mean, uh, a word sometimes used to mean to be born. What it doesn't mean, though, anywhere is made. But that's an argument that Carrier makes um, on, based on some highly dubious linguistics. And, but you can search the, the corpus of Greek, of Greek literature 
in this period. And you won't find this verb meaning made. So this is the kind of thing that he does. He, he makes these statements. And if you don't know what, if you don't know the linguistics, because he doesn't, uh, you, you would kind of think, wow, he just said something really profound there. But it's, it's factually wrong. So he, his argument about born of a woman doesn't stand up because it actually does make sense. It is a common phrase. And what, the way Paul is using it makes sense. And his argument that it's, oh, it's all symbolic, it's not. The whole argument of Galatians is who was born under the law and who wasn't. So it's all about lineage, and he's saying Jesus was born of a woman. He's not saying it symbolically. He's talking about a guy who was actually born. And this is so this is not some weird phrase that doesn't make any sense. It actually makes perfect sense. It makes more sense, better sense, if there was a, an actual dude. And this highlights the issue with someone as a layman if I try to interpret things just using my own 20th century American understanding of what's being written because these the Gospels, the letters of Paul, they weren't written for me. They were written yeah. in the first century by a first century person for other first century people. And yeah. so that's why it's super important to as skeptics to talk to experts or to read the literature of the people who study this time period, because, you know, if we, there's a lot of things that would seem weird to us that were completely normal to them. You know, yep. and, and, and certainly the, the language thing is an issue because we're, we're, not, we're not just dealing with um, English translations of, in this case, Greek texts. We're also usually dealing with um, Christian translations mm -hmm. of Greek text. And this is why going back to what the Greek actually says, so it's not being filtered through theology is important as well. That's true, because we know that the scribes as, you know, the, the gospels and the letters of Paul come to us via a long transmission of scribes who, yep. for whatever reason, because they thought that they that an error had been made, or perhaps they were harmonizing different works to have them all play nicely together, they would change little things over time. And so you also have to take into account the motivations of the scribes along the way. Yeah. And this is why I was sort of saying, you, 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 as you just said, Jordan, we, you need to get that technical background in order to be able to see where the flaws in these arguments often are. I mean, he, he uses a, a, um, an argument from silence, and I think you guys kind of picked, up, picked him up on a couple of points in relation to this. But he was saying, you know, no one mentioned him for the better part of 100 years. And he, he's sort of saying, well, that's weird if, if the guy existed. It's not weird. It's exactly what we would expect. Because he, he does he does claim that um, you know that there was uh, plenty of other people who were who were around uh, who who get mentioned by like him who get mentioned by contemporaries but Jesus doesn't well that's factually wrong uh, none of the other him twice yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. well I mean, if we leave that to one side but um, all the other all the other uh, first century early first century Jewish messianic claimants prophets preachers and so on that we know of uh, were all mentioned you know usually bit by Josephus but all mentioned um, long after their time so none of them are actually mentioned by anyone contemporary so it's not surprising that we find that for Jesus as well um, and then with with you know we, we'll, we'll get on to Josephus because you know you can't you can't talk about this without tackling Josephus. But no, that's true. then there's then there's Tacitus, you know, and Tacitus gives a a fairly bald and actually quite hostile who, what, when, and where about Jesus. In an aside, he says, you know, there was this guy, his name was Christus. Um, it was called Christus, which is just the the Latinized version of the Greek version of the word of the word anointed one, Messiah. 
and he was a troublemaker executed by Pontius Pilate in Judea under the reign of, of, uh, of Tiberius. So that puts him in a place and a particular time. And there's nothing in that. I mean, the way mythicists deal with that is either say it's an interpolation. Well, you know, they, they try that on everything that doesn't quite fit their theory. If anything can be interpolation. Everything's an interpolation. <laughs> or they, they try and say, well, yeah, but he just got his information from the, from the Christians. He's just repeating what Christians claimed about Jesus. Well, he doesn't say that. And actually, actually Tassus was very uh, careful about repeating hearsay and would usually indicate and say, you know, the common report is this, because he was quite quite a sceptical writer. He doesn't say that. Um, he states it flat out, and there's nothing in there that indicates a Christian origin. So there's no mention of miracles. There's no mention of, of him uh, rising from the dead. So it seems like the kind of information that he would get from a non-Christian source, not a Christian one. The problem is uh, ancient writers didn't footnote their their, uh, their sources, so we don't know where he got it from. But So what we then do is say, okay, well, who could he have got it from? Yes, he could have got it from Christians, either directly or indirectly, but um, nothing indicates that. He could have got it from his friend Pliny the Younger, who who we know um, uh, executed, tried and executed Christians when he was, he was a governor, maybe, or he could have got it from uh, from aristocratic Jewish, Jewish exiles that we know he mixed with in Rome, because the the uh, the daughter of King Herod Agrippa, Princess Berenice, was the mistress of the Emperor Titus, and we know they moved in the same circles. And there was another guy that he could have got it from, a guy called uh, yes Yusuf Ben Metayu, who we know by the, his Roman name uh, Flavius Josephus. He was in Rome. He was an historian and he was an aristocrat. These are the kinds of people that Tassus would probably go to and say, tell me about this, this sect of Christians. And if you actually look at what Josephus may have said in the testimonium, if you take out the bits that everyone agrees are interpolated, it actually maps pretty well with what Tacitus says as well. Now, look, we don't know. But, you know, he's, he, he talks, Fitzgerald talks about, um, you know, they sh- they, these people should have mentioned Jesus. And he, he actually made a, a claim that there are all these other all these writers that mention people like Jesus, and but they don't mention Jesus. Um, but he never tells us who they are. <laughs> so, and if you actually look at who who talks about these sorts of people, Jewish prophets and preachers, there's actually virtually no one. It's mainly Josephus, and of course, as we'll get to, Josephus does mention Jesus at least once, if not possibly twice. So I, I don't think I don't think that argument from silence works terribly well. Uh, it's a difficult yeah. thing to pull off an argument from silence, and I don't think he makes it, it, it at all effectively. One thing I was going to say about that is, <clears throat> oftentimes when they're when they're arguing from this perspective, it seems to me that they are conflating it that the the full blown miracle doing Jesus versus the historical Jesus that we're claiming. So like. Exactly. If there was a full-blown miracle doing Jesus, then maybe we should expect more people to talk about it. But if he was just a apophilactic, apophilactic prophet, yeah. then maybe we wouldn't have that many people, you know, mentioning yeah. him, right? So yeah, exactly. exactly. There's there's a huge difference between the historical footprint we'd expect from a person like raising the dead and healing lepers <laughs> left and right, and you know, just yet another apocalyptic prophet who is causing trouble and got right. strung up by the Romans, crucified like thousands of others. You know, even the Gospels who which do everything they possibly can to exaggerate Jesus' um, significance. And they say, you know, he was, he was famous, he was heard by everyone throughout the whole of Galilee. 
which actually isn't very famous. You know, small on the map. Yeah, <laughs> everybody in this rural town of Ohio loves this guy. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, so, so you know, Galilee was considered a backwater by other Jews. And Judea was considered a backwater by the Romans. So why would someone in, you know, Alexandria or Corinth or Rome be saying, oh, by the way, there's this dirty peasant preacher in, in Galilee uh, <laughs> preaching a completely incomprehensible message that I do not understand at all to other dirty peasants in Galilee. I must write this down immediately. <laughs> so it, it just doesn't make a hell of a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, right. he, he does, but it's interesting that, you know, another argument that Fitzgerald makes is, you know, there's no reason why he, he, he would have been executed by the, by the Romans. Well, yeah, there is. Um, you know, yeah. Standing up and saying the kingdom of God is coming any day, and heavily, at least heavily, kind of implying that 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 he was the Messiah that was going to usher in the kingdom of God, literally the King of the Jews. Um, that was enough to, to to lend more than enough to get you get you nailed up. And he and and one element that is in the Gospels, and it's in all four. Uh, which most most of these anecdotes aren't. But one of the things that is in all four is Jesus going to the temple and causing a bit of a riot and uh, at Passover. Yeah, so what's going on? Is, right? <laughs> the one time that the Roman governor was in town, specifically right. for this reason. Specifically for that reason. The, the, the reason, I mean, the Roman governors had this, this beautiful palace down on the, on the coast in Caesarea, you know, nice sea breezes, very pleasant. They they tried to avoid going up to Jerusalem because Jerusalem was like full of crazy angry Jews and the place was so <laughs> hot. And so, so, but but they made a point of doing it at Passover and sitting in the fortress Antonia, which is like over literally overlooking the temple compound, for precisely this reason. So the idea that uh, that that there was would have been no reason for them to execute him, yeah, there would. And yeah. why were the why were the Jewish leaders involved? Well. You know, the Gospels actually have them say it's better for one man to die than lots of people. And we know that Pilate was pretty trigger-happy when it came to massacres. Like he, 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 we, we have three separate incidents where he just basically decided, okay, I've had enough of you guys and just set the troops on, on people and killed people. So right. that's why they would be involved. This, this, this idiot has come down from you know, the boondocks. He's causing trouble in the temple. He's going to get people killed. Let's hand him over to the guy. Now, look, did that happen? Who knows? It is pretty clear, though, that what the Gospels are trying to do is dance around the point that their uh, wonderful Messiah was was nailed up by a a Roman governor. That's kind of awkward, particularly in the wake of the Jewish revolt, and we know that the Gospels, particularly the the Gospel of Mark, seems to have been written in response to that event. It would have caused a PR problem. So why 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 are the, are the trial scenes in the gospel so weird? Largely because they're they're trying to excuse the fact that their guy was executed by the Romans and trying to make it look as though that wasn't that wasn't what it looks like, guys. You know, he wasn't one of those crazy Jews. Yeah. Well, Pilate actually yeah. didn't want to kill him. Oh, he had yeah. to, you know. That's right. Yeah, the Pilate <laughs> of the Gospels is this lovely fella. You know, the Romans come out of, of, of uh, Mark's Gospel looking really good. I mean, the first guy, the only guy uh, who actually recognizes Jesus for what he is, is the Roman centurion that's standing at the foot of the cross. He's the one who says, "Surely, you know, surely, this man was the Son of God." Uh, that's the climax of the gospel. Yeah. And it's basically, it's a, it's a brilliant piece of PR. It's kind of saying, yeah, well, you, know, you Romans get him. The evil Jews, they didn't. I have to say that that, uh, that assertion that like there's no reason why Jesus would have been killed makes absolutely no sense. Like you said, like Pilate 
was eventually removed from his <laughs> station for being too brutal for the Romans, which is saying something. That's like, right. And That's the right. Romans were not pleasant people. Like, as long as you paid your tribute and did what you were supposed to do, it was fine. But yeah. if you come around saying, hey, this evil world is going to be thrown apart and if you're in power now, you're going to be cast down. The Romans we're in power now, you know, <laughs> like, and we'll see who casts down who when you're sitting on a cross. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, you, 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 one of your uh, listeners, I think, raised the, the argument that Christopher Hitchens makes about why Hitchens believed that there probably was a historical Jesus, which was because the infancy gospels, the gospel about uh, the gospel stories in Matthew and Luke about how Jesus was born in Bethlehem, because those are so convoluted and contradictory, they, they're clearly trying really, really hard to find a way that a guy that everyone knew was from Nazareth was born in Bethlehem, which was where the Messiah was meant to come from, according to the prophet Micah. And, and Hitchens said, well, that only really makes sense if, uh, if there actually was a guy and he was from the wrong town, which is a pretty good argument. Now, the way... Uh, Fitzgerald tried to argue against that is he tried to say that, um, first of all, that there wasn't very little in Mark to tie him to the town of Nazareth. Uh, okay, if you open the Gospel of Mark, in the very first chapter, the very first thing that the Gospel of Mark says about Jesus is literally, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth, um, came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptised by John in the Jordan. It's the very first thing that the gospel says about Jesus is that he came from Nazareth and went down to the Jordan. Uh, then he tried to sort of say, oh, well, he doesn't actually use the word. Um, uh, doesn't actually use the word that, that means uh, from Nazareth. He, he uses a word, another word, which is, which is entirely different. It's, uh, it's a word that, that means he was a Nazarite, someone who had taken a vow. Um, this is, I mean, I'm reading my notes, bullshit. Right, he's just actually <laughs> wrong. Is right? that the technical so the, term? The word, yeah, very technical term. But the word yeah. that means Nazarite is in 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 Greek is Nazairos, right? So it's but the word that that means that that um, the Mark uses about Jesus is Nazarenos. It's similar, but they're different words. So he said, "Oh, you know, he doesn't doesn't use the word that means that would mean from Nazareth. He uses this other word that means Nazarite. That's factually." wrong. And the word Nazarenos, well, you know, we, we know it's a gentilic. We know it's got a, it, it's a genitive form of a, of a noun that has to mean something like Nazara, which is what the, one of the variant forms of Nazareth. And it's like uh, Magdalene, which means from Magdalene, or uh, Kyrenion, which means from, from Cyrene. It's a gentilic. It means from, from or of. So he's just factually wrong when he says, oh, no, 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 it meant Nazarite. Wrong, wrong word, completely wrong. So what about elsewhere where they use the term uh, Nazorian? Is that a yeah. different word in the same family? Yeah, um, that's, that's tricky, and I think you, you touched on this in the conversation with, with uh, Fitzgerald, Jordan. Um, Matthew uses a, a variant, and, and there's a lot of discussion about why, and is it, is it a reference to Nazarite? Could be it's still a different word, uh, but but when it comes to what um, what Mark says, Mark is quite clearly saying he's from this town, and and therefore all of all of, uh, of Fitzgerald's objections to Hitchens' argument kind of fall away um, because he made an argument that's based on a factual factual error. So yeah. 
if you're reading uh, Mything in Action, which is the book that David talks about this, he talks a lot, he makes a lot of points about this Nazorian uh, meaning some different things. He cites some scholars. That is, like you said, an active question. But what you have to keep in mind is he's getting that from Matthew, and Matthew is after Mark and used Mark. And sure. so Mark is first. So if Mark said this thing that explicitly means from Nazareth and then Matthew changed it, it's an interesting question as to why he changed it. Yeah. But it doesn't change the fact that he did, in fact, change it from a word that meant from Nazareth, right? Yeah, that's right. Absolutely correct. And then, so that brings us back to, okay, what, why are they tying themselves in knots about which town he was from? Well, because he's from the wrong bloody town. Now, there's still <laughs> people saying, oh, well, that doesn't mean he actually existed. No, it doesn't necessarily mean that. But let's, again, apply Occam's razor. That makes most sense. It makes most sense that that was an awkward fact that they had to try and reconcile with their theology about who Jesus was. Therefore, right. there was a guy that was causing the awkward the awkward development in the first place. What, like you said at the top, what we're looking for is not you're not going to find hard and fast like the guy's corpse with a named stamp and like that's just not going to happen. So you're sure. looking for the most parsimonious explanation that most easily explains all the evidence without ad hoc assertions and things like that. Uh, absolutely, and this is something I think a lot of people don't kind of understand about history, particularly people who have never studied history and, and maybe are coming at this from say the sciences or or some other background. History is at its core the study of history is an assessment of what is most likely. You can't prove stuff in history. Even in modern history, you can't prove stuff. Uh, but certainly with ancient history, you're always dealing with ambiguous sources, late sources, biased sources, and what a historian does is untangle what is most likely from that. At one point in your conversation, Fitzgerald said, oh, you know, one thing we can all agree on is that the evidence is quite sort of flimsy, it's quite fragmentary, it's quite uh, difficult to interpret. Yeah, welcome to ancient history. <laughs> I mean, I've, spent, I've spent years studying the, the history of the early Germanic tribes, if you want, you know, difficult, flimsy, fragmentary sources, go and, just go and study that topic. Um, this is just how it works. Um, he, he then moved on to that, the argument about uh, the reference to Jesus' um, uh, brother, James, and and he, he he said you know he, that he didn't think that this was a he, he didn't think it was it was a, a slam dunk but he did say and he's right this is actually probably the best piece of evidence and he seemed to think that 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 was that was a strange thing it's not it's again pretty common in ancient history just to have have one piece of evidence that points strongly in one direction for those who may not have seen the previous conversation we're talking about the reference by Josephus who talks about. Uh, James, and he mentions actually, that... Actually, I'm this referring is Paul, to... Paul, right? Oh, sorry, sorry, Paul. Paul. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 Correct myself yeah. again. So there are two references to James' brother, Jesus. One's in Josephus, one's in Paul. Um, or those are the two main sources that we're talking about here. Yeah. Which, sorry. Which, is, which is significant because they support each other. And one's yeah. by a Christian and the other is, is by a non-Christian. One is by someone who actually met James. So it's firsthand. Um, so... And, and was a contemporary of him. So uh, in, in Galatians 1.19, he, he's basically, um, he, he doesn't just sort of say, hey, I met the brother of Jesus. What he's actually saying is, yeah, those guys who are tell telling you that I got all my teachings from these guys in Jerusalem, they're wrong. When I first went to Jerusalem, I didn't meet any of those guys, oh, except I did meet Peter and, and James, the brother of the Lord. So he's actually having to admit it. He's not boasting about it. You know, it undercuts the argument that he's making. So what, who is James the brother of the law? Well, what Fitzgerald and Carrier and so on argue is, well, uh, this is a figurative brother. 
he's not actually a, a sibling of Jesus. This is a, this is a figurative use. And sure, Adelphos and various forms of, of, of the word Adelphos, brother, um, is used figuratively by, by Paul. And people in the, in the early Jesus sect did refer to each other as brother and sister uh, in, in a figurative sense. But as you pointed out, in this case, and in, in the other, only other place in um, where he where he actually uses this uh, this this uh, term, brother of the Lord, not just brother, but brother of the Lord, he he uses it in alongside references to other Christians. So in Galatians one nineteen, he says, "I met with Cephas, that's Peter, and James, the brother of the Lord." So does that mean Cephas isn't a brother of the Lord? So the brother of the Lord is obviously a separate category. Same in, in the, the other um, mention of it, which is in, um, in 1 Corinthians, where he, he's sort of saying, um, you know, why, why, do I, why don't I get to, to have a, uh, a travelling companion who looks after me the way these other guys do, the other apostles, Cephas, and again, the brothers of the Lord. So what people like Fitzgerald say is, um, oh, well, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a sort of a subsect of, of Christianity. Okay, it's pretty clear that, that it's a distinct group. And what they say is, well, there, there must have been a distinct group called the Brothers of the Lord. Okay, there's no evidence for that. But we do have evidence. We do have references elsewhere in the Gospels and also in, in early patristic writings to Jesus having siblings. In fact, Jesus having siblings caused a bit of a problem for Christianity because they came up with this idea of Mary being ever virgin and so the, the brothers kind of became a bit inconvenienced. They got demoted to cousins or half-brothers and so on. So, again, the fact that the brothers are kind of there and a bit awkward indicates that, that they seem to be a very early part of the tradition. Uh, um, so we've got evidence on one hand for a subgroup of believers who were brothers of the Lord because they were Jesus' brothers, they were his siblings. We have no evidence for this other supposed group of brothers of the Lord who weren't siblings. So, again, Occam's razor. Which one do we, do we do we go with? The one that's based on pure supposition to help prop up an argument or the one that we actually have evidence for? It's pretty clear. And just to underline what you were talking about with it being distinguishing, like in those days, unlike now, people, unless you were an aristocrat, you didn't have a last name. Yep. So it, you, there was just a bunch of Jameses and Jesuses and everybody else running around. And so in order, if you were going to clarify who you were talking about, you'd say James the so-and-so to, to kind of like nail it down, right? And yeah. so if you said, if brother of the Lord just means Christian, all you said was Cephas and James the Christian. Well, thanks, which James? Like that doesn't <laughs> tell me anything. <laughs> also, we have other references of Paul using this term, Adolphus or brother, to speak to people who weren't of the Lord, right? So there's other instances who they're obviously Christians, but he's not adding this qualifier on there. So it's exactly. very much a unique. He, he yeah. uses it twice and only twice and both times only when it would be possibly for a flesh and blood brother. Yeah. If he used yeah. brother of the Lord everywhere for people who obviously weren't Jesus brothers and that would under that, then that is what we would see if it what they were correct. But yeah. And look, even, even Carrier admits that the, the Galatians one nineteen reference Using his his um, magic um, Bayesian probability formula, <laughs> which I, I think is kind of silly, but anyway, he he, um, he he comes to the conclusion that it's most likely does point towards historicity, and and Robert Price agrees. 
So, you know, this one's really yeah. difficult for them to get around. I think their arguments that they use to get around it is uh, are very weak. I think the, mo- the most obvious reading of it, the most natural reading of it, is he's talking about he met Jesus' brother. So, bang, there goes biggest mythicism exactly that didn't exist that exactly. shows also how fragile the the theory is like historicity if a few things were wrong or not right Jesus could still be historical like the evidence still kind of holds together if exactly. any what if, if James the brother of Jesus existed as a real person then that's it the whole theory is dead and there are like yeah. this isn't the only fact like this there are many different facts where if, if they get wrong one, one time the whole theory is gone yeah and he also made a big thing about the fact that he said, you know, these guys can't be the followers of Jesus because look at how angry he's getting with them. Look at how disrespectful he's being towards them. That wouldn't make sense. I mean, come on. Have you met human beings? <laughs> <laughs> People get pissed off with each other, you know, and he's saying, oh, he's even saying that that, that they, he doesn't think they're, they're proper believers in Jesus. How many times have you heard some pastor or preacher Say something similar about someone, some other pastor that you disagree with. You know, I don't think you're a real Christian. It's just something the kind of thing happens that all the time. Say. And yeah. not to mention that Paul is right into these people because they keep screwing up. Like right, yeah. and yeah. and he th- and what I feel like they don't really take into account is what Paul saw, how Paul saw himself. Right, Paul believed he had spoken to Jesus. Jesus yeah. talked to him to him yeah. after he died. Like Jesus came down from heaven to talk to Paul. So what does Paul care if you knew Jesus when he was alive? Jesus came to talk to me. Yeah. You know, I was like talking to him just yesterday. You know, when did exactly. he last talk to him? Yeah. Exactly. Right. Which, so like I don't. There, there's no reason why Paul would necessarily be bowing and scraping for someone who knew Jesus when he was alive because he knew Jesus when he was already in heaven. Yeah, exactly. Which brings me to another argument that he, that um, Fitzgerald makes, which is this claim that, that Paul says everything he knows about Jesus he gets from Scripture and from Revelation, that he doesn't get it from uh, people who knew Jesus. So he, he's saying that, that all of his understanding, all of his knowledge of Jesus comes from Revelation. Um, now, Jordan, you're absolutely right that Paul does claim that he, he has had visions and, and spoken to Jesus. And in Galatians, the argument that he's making that you don't have to be circumcised and eat kosher in order to be redeemed by Jesus' death and resurrection, you, you can you can be a Gentile and still be saved, is based on that uh, a revelation. He's actually saying, I did not get this teaching you know, from, uh, from man. I got it directly from Jesus. So don't argue with me about it. I, this is coming from the man, right. man himself. Um, this gets misinterpreted, though, because uh, what, what he actually says is, I didn't get my gospel in English translation. You read it in, in Galatians 1. I didn't get my gospel from any man. I got it directly from Jesus. And when people see the word gospel, the English word gospel, they think gospel. They think, you know, the gospel of Mark, gospel, you know, an account of the life of Jesus. So they interpret it as I didn't get my knowledge of Jesus' life and, 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 and existence and, and what happened to him from man. I got it from Revelation. But he's not saying that because he doesn't use the word gospel. He uses the word evangelion, which in in Greek, which means good news. I didn't get this good news from man. I got it from from Jesus. What good news? Well, he goes on to talk about the good news to the uncircumcised. 
Now, I don't know about you guys, but I think it would be very good news to learn that you're not going to have the end of your cock cut off. So that's what he's talking about. Talking Especially about. as a full-grown man. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, so he's not saying I, I didn't I didn't get my knowledge of Jesus from from uh, from man. I got it from Revelation. He's saying I got, I got this specific teaching that I'm getting very angry about in this letter from Jesus. And, and then there's... It, well, it doesn't even make sense that Paul would have gotten literally everything he knew about Jesus and Christians from Revelation because he was persecuting Christians already. Yeah. He didn't like why was he persecuting them if he knew nothing about them? Obviously, he knew something. <laughs> That's right. Um, and and he also says several things which can only make sense if he was getting teachings from other people. So in First Corinthians fifteen three, he says, uh, I, "I handed on to you." as of first importance, what I in turn had received, that, that Christ died for our sins and according to the Scriptures. Right. The, the key word there is, is the word received. Um, it, it's paralabon in Greek. And this is a rabbinical term. So this is a term used by Jewish rabbis to, to mean teaching that has been passed on from me and that I've received and that I'm now passing on to you. So what he's saying is I'm, you're getting it from me the way I got it from, from other people. Not from, not from Revelation, but it's even clearer when he, he, uh, he in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three he goes on, he passes on the, the tradition about Jesus' last supper. So he says, for I received, same word, um, parallelbon, from the Lord, what I also handed on to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took a loaf of bread, etc., etc. Now, when it says in English, for I received from the Lord what I handed on to you, it makes it sound as though he's getting it from Jesus. The problem here is the key phrase here is paralabon apo to kiryu, received from the Lord. The, 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 the fact that he uses that word apo means that he's not getting it directly from Jesus. This is the linguistic thing that Greek can do that English can't do. If he was getting it directly from Jesus, he would have used the word para at that point. That means direct transmission. This is indirect transmission. So it came from Jesus ultimately. But Paul didn't get it from Jesus. He got it from intermediaries. So Paul is not getting all of his information from Revelation. He's, he's clearly saying that he got it from other people. And that completely undercuts that argument that everything Paul is saying is coming from Revelation. No, he's getting it from people, people who knew Jesus, including Jesus' own brother. I always yeah. found this argument uh, funny because I just... There, some people don't know there was like a turf war going on between Peter uh, and Paul, you know, they're going back and forth and Peter's like all about maintaining Torah. And I can just imagine Paul going out there, come on guys, like, let's, let's come on. You got to chop your penis off. Let's go. <laughs> and then he's like, all right, I heard from the Lord. You don't got to do this. This is cool. Like that's how I vision this happening. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> right. You know, it, this, is why, this is why I think that, that key word, you went getting on um, uh, yeah, good news. Good news, guys. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Just and, things off the agenda. And that's like Paul, in, in it seems, is really the reason that Christianity took hold because Paul had the innovation to like, yeah. hey, maybe we can broaden our message a little bit, you know, and whether he did it pragmatically or not, doesn't matter. Like it's way more attractive if you can eat what you want and you can do what you want and you can yeah. not cut your genitalia and it's fine guys. <laughs> um, there's some really good work that's been done recently by Paula Fredrickson, who's a great uh, scholar of a Jewish scholar of early Christianity. And she kind of puts Paul very much in, in the context of Judaism at the time. And it looks like it wasn't a big innovation. It looks like the idea of the Messiah saving 
uh, the Gentiles as well as as well as the the, the chosen people uh, was already around, and then Paul was really sort of tapping into that. So there's some quite interesting work that's being done fairly recently on on, on that context. But yeah, you're right. Uh, I, I'm really certain, I'm fairly certain that if it wasn't for Paul, we wouldn't be sitting having this conversation about Christianity. It would be a, a dusty footnote that only nerds like me would would be aware of. Um, <laughs> so you mentioned sorry, uh, a Jewish uh, scholar there, and I think it's important. Something that in Fitzgerald's book, he spends, it's got to be three or four full chapters yeah. trying to dismantle the field of uh, Jesus studies New Testament history like and discredit and say basically the only reason they come to this conclusion is because they're all fundamentalist Christians. He doesn't use those words to be clear. I'm sure, exaggerating sure. a little bit. Yeah. But uh, that they're religiously motivated. The field is basically corrupt and so you can't rely on their their uh, their results. And so I, I think it's really important to for people who aren't in this field to, to recognize that that's not the case. There are Jewish scholars and atheists and agnostic and other people who are coming to these conclusions. There are even Christians who are coming to conclusions that aren't exactly mainstream, like church pew conclusions, you know? Yeah. So, Yeah, look, I read, I read a hell of a lot of scholars in this area, but I tend to avoid the ones who, are, who, who, I, who, I, who I know are, um, are traditional Christians, you know, people like N.T. Wright and Ben Witherington and so on. I just I, – I, I, I don't trust scholars who, who examine all the evidence and then just happen to always come to the conclusion that fits with their faith. Um, I do trust scholars. Wow, what a coincidence, right? <laughs> Amazing. It turns out I was right all along. Um, but I do trust scholars who, who are prepared to to change their mind on, on stuff that they've studied. So Bart Ehrman has changed his mind on several fairly fundamental things, and I think that uh, even on things I, I don't happen to agree with him on, I think that's a that's a sign of of true honesty. And there's also a, a, a Christian scholar that I really admire, a guy called Dale C. Allison, mm. who's uh, written some great stuff on Jesus as an apocalyptic preacher. Now, I agree with everything Allison, almost everything Allison says about Jesus. Yet he's a Christian, and I'm and I'm not. Um, now, exactly how he compartmentalizes his faith from his scholarship is something that he's actually written a book about, which I've got to get around to reading one of these days. But, yeah, this idea that, that the whole reason that people accept that, that Jesus exists is because the field is dominated by Christians. And I think you might have said it, Jordan, even if we completely ignore the, the Christians, who, of course, there are many, obviously, but even if we just focus on the Jewish scholars, uh, on, the, on the agnostics, on the atheists, on the various non-Christian scholars, there's still an overwhelming consensus on this. So that isn't the case. Now, when you point this out, they sort of say, oh, well, yeah, but, but Christianity is so culturally dominant that they, they can't bring themselves to, 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 uh, to think that they might not have been a Jesus. We've even been told, you know, Bart Ehrman would be out of a job. I'm pretty certain Bart Ehrman would still be in a job. We'd have him over here in Australia. We're, we're not very Christian. Right <laughs> I think he'd still get a job. You know, the University of Sydney would snap him up. But um, the, that argument is just completely, completely nonsensical because, as you just pointed out, Jordan, all of these people um, believe things that would probably startle the average uh, evangelical churchgoer, uh, and and many of them many of them believe things that are, are completely incompatible with Christianity as a as a faith. So why would they stop short? You know, they're quite happy to believe that he was an apocalyptic preacher and that he was wrong and he was probably a bit of a nut. Happy to believe that, but why would they stop short of? Oh well, we can't bring ourselves to say he didn't exist. The real reason they don't say that he didn't exist is that the arguments aren't very good. 
That's that's yeah. the fact. I mean, if you read the works of. Uh, I've read Marcus Borg, who I'm pretty sure is a Christian. John Dominic Cross, Cross definitely considers himself a Christian. Yep. And they don't think that Jesus even like bodily rose from the dead. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. so, so the, the argument that they, they can't bring themselves, they're so culturally, even the ones who aren't Christians are so culturally captured, they can't bring themselves to, to envisage this. It's just complete nonsense. It's just that the arguments aren't very good. Right. Well, I think there was one more topic that we had covered with um, – with David specifically, and that was the Josephus topic, and there was two of them. Did we want to review that real quick? Or? Yeah, well, let's let's look at Josephus twenty uh, two hundred. So that's the the book twenty reference, the passing reference to Jesus and James, and this connects back to what we were just talking about the the James reference in Galatians, because here you've got someone who who is not a Christian, and uh, and and he mentions this in passing. He's talking about something else. He's talking about how the uh, Hanan ben Hanan, or, or Ananus, uh, as he's called, um, the high priest, was deposed. And he says that he was deposed because he illegally executed some people. And some of those, uh, some of, the, uh, of, of other Jewish leaders decided this was a bad thing. And they basically, you know, told the Romans he's done a bad thing and the Romans deposed him. This was a big deal for Josephus. Josephus was from a priestly family and uh, he was a young man in Jerusalem when this happened. This happened around about 62, 63 AD. Um, Josephus had just come back from Rome where he was on a diplomatic mission to the Roman Senate on behalf of the priesthood. And he was he was a, a young politician in Jerusalem from a priestly family. So the high priest being deposed would have the same kind of impact on him as, say, the resignation of Richard Nixon would have on a young Republican in the, in the early 1970s. It would be that kind of thing. So he would have been paying very careful attention to why this happened. And the reason it happened was because of these illegal executions. And he says, executed um, that James, who was the, bro- the brother of that, of, of that Jesus who was called the Messiah, um, James by name, and some others. Now, this is just a passing reference. But he identifies this James by reference to the brother, and he identifies the brother by saying, well, it wasn't just any Jesus, because that was a sixth-month popular name at the time. It was that Jesus who was called Messiah, a fairly distinctive thing about this particular Jesus. So the, the passage actually, despite what uh, Fitzgerald tried to argue, it actually makes perfect sense. And I think, Jordan, you made this point. It reads perfectly well as it is. He's talking about why the guy was executed. You know, it was because while the guy was deposed, it was because of these executions. One of the people executed was James, the brother of Jesus, who was called the Messiah. Yeah, you know, then talked about how he was replaced by a guy who also had the very common name, Jesus. And so he identifies him as Jesus, son of Damnaeus, Jesus being Damnaeus. So he's got two guys called Jesus in the same in the same passage. He differentiates between them for his readers so they understand that they're two different people. Now, what Fitzgerald tries to do, following again his, his hero and friend Richard Carrier, is he tries to say, well, no, 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 there's only one Jesus. So the Jesus, who was the brother of James, was actually Jesus' son of, son of Damnaeus. And what, what Scribe has done is come along and taken out that first reference to him being, being Damnaeus and, include, and, and inserted who was called Messiah. The problem, as you pointed out, Jordan, and as I've argued in, in a fairly detailed ar- article, is that this goes completely against the way in which Josephus used identifying appellations such as, you know, son of Damnaeus or who was called Messiah. Because what he what he always does, not generally, always, and I've gone through 
the complete works of Josephus to check this. Because <laughs> I'm a good skeptic. I, does yeah. I considered? I was like, you know what? I should really do that. But there's a lot of works of Josephus. <laughs> it took me a while, but yeah, I, I, and I paid particular attention to how he uses these identifiers, and and this is significant because he has to use identifiers a lot in his works because there's a lot of of guys called Antiochus, a lot of guys called uh, called um, Ptolemy. There's a lot of guys called um, Simeon or Matthias or Jesus. There's a whole lot of Jesus, about like 28 Jesus that was in, uh, in, in Josephus' works. So because he's got all these people who have the same bloody name, to try and uh, to make sure his readers understand which person he's talking about, he's actually very careful in the way in which he uses these identifiers. And he uses quite often patronymics, so son of, Jesus son of, of Damnaeus, Jesus Ben Damnaeus. He uses gentilics. So that's place names. So you know, Jesus of, of Nazareth is one of those, uh, and he he often uses nicknames, cognomen. Uh, so he uh, in this case he's he's using it about about Jesus. He's saying that the guy who was who was called Legomenos, who was called um, Messiah, that Jesus, not another Jesus. And what he does is when he introduces them, he he uses the identifier. Once he's done that, he just calls them by their first name. If he then has to reintroduce them later on. He'll, he'll go back and use the identifier again, but then he'll just use the first name. And if he's got two people with the same first name in the same kind of anecdote, he's very careful to make sure that he, he does uses a different identifier for each of them to make it clear that they're two different people. And that's what he's doing here. For Carrier-Fitzgerald to be right, he must have gone completely against that and decided to use Jesus Ben Damnaeus twice or... Alternatively, he must have just called him Jesus first without identifying which Jesus and then identified him the second time he mentioned him, which, again, nowhere does he do, do that in any of his works. Also, so wouldn't, it make sense to that, sorry, wouldn't it make also more sense that this Jesus, his brother, was just killed? Don't you think Joseph was, Josephus was mentioned that? <laughs> That's right. That's <laughs> yeah. the problem with Fitzgerald's argument because effectively, according to Fitzgerald and Carrier, what he's saying is, well, he killed this guy, um, James, uh, the, the the brother of Jesus, and then Jesus became the high priest uh, after he was deposed. Well, it's kind of ironic. It's a bit weird, as you say, yeah. Jared. It's a bit weird he doesn't point that out. You know, the brother of the aforementioned Jesus, because that's kind of you know, it, it's a cool story. So that it, it just doesn't make sense. It does make sense if he's talking about two different people. It fits. They, it fits yeah. Josephus's consistent usage, and and the whole passage just hangs together. And another thing that uh, Fitzgerald and I think Godless Engineers said this too is like it doesn't make sense why they would be upset if James is this Christian. Like, why did he kill him? Because Christians were hated and everything. But that yeah. also doesn't ring true for me. Not yeah. I'm not a historian, but just like knowing human beings. Even if I don't like my neighbor, if the cops came and executed him in the street for no reason, I'd yeah. be pretty upset. You know, like, and it's like, it doesn't take a stretch to say, okay, maybe, I mean, maybe they did like this, James. I don't know. But even yeah. if they didn't, okay, maybe we don't like James, but this guy is using his power to execute people unlawfully. It's only a matter of time. He's executing his enemies. Even if I don't like his enemy, it doesn't mean I'm down with that. You exactly. Know? Exactly. And, and, you know, all politicians have got rivals and enemies. And, and the rivals and enemies are always looking for an opportunity, you know, for when a politician slips up. To, to use that. So even if they hated Christians, even right. if James was despised, even if, 
as, as Fitzgerald tries to claim, Christianity was outlawed. And there's actually no evidence that, that was the case. Absolutely or that not They true. were running around executing Christians left, right, and centre. Again, that just wasn't happening. Even the, even the, the, the Book of Acts doesn't pretend that that was happening. They, they have only a couple of incidents where, where someone actually gets executed for being a Christian. So even if that were the case, if you're an enemy of Hanan ben Hanan, the high priest, and you're looking for an opportunity to slip up, well, here it is. And what you can do is then turn to the Romans to say, ah, look what he's done. It doesn't matter if you, if you, you didn't like James. It's, it's your opportunity to get at Hanan. That's, that's the point. So the story does make sense. And, and, you know, I, I, he was sort of like quite dismissive of the argument about the identifiers and appellations. Well, actually, that's a, that's a bloody solid argument. If I don't say so myself, I think that's a bloody, it's my argument, right? <laughs> it's a pretty solid <laughs> argument. This is one of the few times I'm actually making a, a, an original argument of my own. Um, and, and Carrier has been confronted with, with this argument. And Carrier's got a hair trigger when it comes to criticism. Uh, he, he's very quick. Uh, to to come come down like a ton of bricks on any any kind of critic, and it was interesting that there was crickets when I, I first proposed this argument, and people kept saying to him, "What are you going to say in response to this argument that Tim O'Neill's made about your, your your paper?" And eventually, he responded really badly, um, missed the point of what I was saying completely. I've replied to that, and again, it's been crickets ever since. He doesn't have a counter argument on this. He, he and- knows he knows he knows he knows it as well. Yeah, and with yet again, they'll often, you know, like you said, go to interpolation. But if we look at Josephine scholars who are mostly Jewish uh, or secular, this is yeah. not a Christian-dominated field. It almost nobody thinks that this is uh, not authentic. That was a weird way to phrase it. Almost everybody accepts that this is an authentic thing, exactly. and that's not to say that it's right because they say so. <clears throat> but as laymen. What's more likely that every single person in this field who has studied it their entire lives and has no motivation to to come to this conclusion, all of them got it wrong. And some rando like Carrier, who this is not his field, you know, he is he does he does have a degree, but it's not in this specific guy. So like he got it right, but everybody who's an expert on this specific person got it wrong, but like, come on. You know? it's, it's, it's unlikely at best. Exactly. Um, and, and this is a point that, that Fitzgerald made. He kept saying, oh, but there are scholars who agree with me. Look, this is the most well-plowed field in the whole, uh, in, in academic study, full stop. People have been have been going over this these sources with a fine-tooth comb for about 250 years at least. So if you throw a rock you will hit someone who's made some kind of argument about something. If you can plausibly think of, a, of, a, of, a, of an idea, a possibility, you will find a paper out there somewhere that some scholar has, has argued. So just because you can say, well, there are scholars who agree with me, there are always going to be scholars who agree with you on anything in this field. This is why consensus mm-hmm. and, and, and at least you know, some kind of, of majority, again, it's not doesn't mean it's correct, but it, it does stand for something. If you're not convincing people of your argument, then that's probably because it's not a particularly good argument. Yeah, Um, this that's a a great thing to just keep in mind as skeptics that you can always find one guy in any field who who believes just about anything. (laughs) People people say to me things like they say, "Well, Richard Carrier's got a a PhD and you don't, right?" 
that's fine. First of all, I'm not, apart from that last one, I'm not making any kind of original arguments. I'm just sort of uh, presenting what, what the majority of scholars believe and, 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 and trying to explain why. Uh, but, yeah, there's a guy called Dr. Jerry Boo in, in California who is a astronomer. Uh, who has a has had a, a teaching career? I think he's retired now. He has published work in astronomy, and he's a geocentrist. He believes that the Earth is the center of the universe. Now he just happens to also be a fundamentalist Christian, right? But he's got a PhD, so should we believe in geocentrism? <laughs> no, because everyone thinks that Jerry Boo is a complete dickhead. But he's got a PhD. Right? He's not an idiot, but he's wrong. Yeah. Right. Um, and, and, and this, I suppose, brings us to the, the inevitable testimonium Flavianum, so the other longer reference to Jesus in, in Josephus. And this one, I don't play, place any weight on this at all. And that's because, and I think you guys were saying exactly the same thing, that's because there's enough doubt about this for, it, for, for us to, to really have to set it to one side. And that's because everyone agrees that parts of it, at least, the bits that says he was the Messiah, the bits that say he rose on the third day, possibly the bits that say that he performed miracles, have been added, at least. Or the whole passage is an interpolation. Now, there are scholars on both sides. The majority of Josephus scholars believe that it was partially authentic. It was just being added to, but there actually was originally a reference to Jesus. Um, a minority of scholars, but still very solid, well-respected uh, well scholars who make good, sound arguments argue that it's a wholesale interpolation. They're a minority, but they're not crackpots. They're not fringe uh, weirdos. They're, and they're not Jesus mythicists either. So in this case, there actually is solid uh, scholarship on the on the issue of it being a, uh, a wholesale interpolation. Personally, I find the majority to be more convincing. I think partial authenticity, there's, there's good evidence that there was partial authenticity, but the question is moot. Like there's no way you can actually pick between the two and say, well, it's definitely this or definitely that, or it's even more, much more likely to be this or that in this case because there's good arguments on both sides. So this is why I don't place any, any emphasis on it. What tends to happen, though, is that mythicists overstate the case and say, well, it's now basically it's decided. You know, for a godless engineer, that godless engineer guy say this, it's all over. You know, it's definitely a forgery. Richard Carrier has written an article on his blog called Let's just admit it's fake already, not accept, not conclude, admit, because we all kind of know that it's fake. We just have to admit it. Yeah. Well, Everybody except those silly Josephine scholars. Oh, they just, oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, in, in, in his book Nailed, Fitzgerald actually says that you know, desperate Christian apologists try to argue for partial authenticity. Well, I think, you know, Dr. Or Professor Geza Hermes, Hermes, the uh, the late emeritus professor of Jew Jewish studies at Oxford would probably, if he was still with us, be amused to hear that he is a, uh, a desperate Christian apologist. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> as would as would many eminent Jewish scholars who who, uh, who feel, think the same thing. Um, right. So, you know, can we can we decide though? I think unless we actually find a new manuscript or we have a Dead Sea Scrolls type situation where we, we get a copy of Josephus that's got it or doesn't have it. Um, we're never going to we're never going to be able to settle on it. But if you, if you look at some of the arguments that I must admit, I did kind of skim through this bit because, as I said, I, I'm not I don't think that the testimony is 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 good evidence either way. But he he made a couple of arguments which again which are completely wrong. Um, he said 
Origen, the, the third century uh, Christian writer Origen, complains that Josephus should have mentioned Jesus and never does. And I'm um, just looking at my notes. My, my note on this is garbage. Because uh, it is. It's garbage. And, and Jordan, you picked this up. You said, well, hang on, Origen doesn't say that. Origen says he should have said that he was the Messiah, but he doesn't say that he should have mentioned Jesus but doesn't. In fact, Origen, not once, not twice, three times, says that um, Josephus didn't believe he was the Messiah, but he should have said that he was, and actually quotes the Jesus-James reference that we were just talking about. Quotes it verbatim, word for word, three times, twice in uh, his book Contra Celsus and once in the Commentarius in, in Matteo, well, his, his commentary on, on the Gospel of Matthew. Um, so you picked him up on that, Jordan, because that's just a flat-out error of fact. That's not true. Why does he keep saying this, though? Because people have pointed this out to him before, and it just seems to bounce straight off him. It's, it's very strange. I don't know, habit? It's a good argument? I, I mean, it would be devastating to his arguments so <laughs> can't have that i guess could be it um but but he, he also talked about well you know if if there was a uh, an original um un, un, uh, up version of the testimonium in josephus why does no why does no uh, of the uh, none of the church fathers actually quote it um and he says 17 of, of the church fathers cite josephus that's true but if you actually have a look at what they say about Josephus, you can see that most of the time they're either very, very vague about exactly what they're referring to. So we don't know if they're referring to antiquities of the Jews, which is the, the work in which the passage is found, or we can we do know because we know that they're referring to Jewish war, which is the other uh, work, but not, not the one with this passage. So there's only one of all of them, of all those 17, there's only one patristic writer, one early church father, who, who we definitely know was uh, referring to or had a copy of um, Antiquities. And that's Origen, who, as I just mentioned, <laughs> refers to James passage. Now, he doesn't refer to the testimonium. And, and so this is why you can make an argument, well, why doesn't he? But then you can make a counter-argument and say, well, why would he? Because if the original testimonium, if the original reference simply said there was a wise man, he was executed, um, and this is a sad calamity, then we'll, where's the context in which Origen would use that? No one was disputing that Jesus existed or was executed. So why would he use that? The other thing is um, Origen does refer to Josephus a few times. He actually refers to him 11 times. Jerome, writing two centuries later in the 5th century, refers to Josephus 90 times. Jerome only refers to the testimonium passage a later version of it, the one that actually says stuff about him rising from the dead, once. So he, Jerome mentions, refers to Josephus 90 times and only mentions the testimonium once. Origen only refers to Josephus 11 times. It's not actually terribly likely that he would refer to an un, uh, unadded to version of the and testimonium. It had no purpose. Jerome had our modern version with all of the additions? He did, um, but he had a slight—he had a slight variation. Uh, instead of saying he was the Christ, he was the Messiah. Jerome's version says he was believed to be the Messiah, which is one of the. There's a number of these these variants that seem to indicate an earlier version that didn't—that wasn't as, as Christian as the version we've got now. 
gotcha. um, that that just talked about people believing him to be the Messiah. That's 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 so that's that's one of the indications that there was a an original version that the Christians have just kind of touched up a bit rather than a wholesale interpolation. That's another time when you have to keep in mind that there's space between the testimonium as we have it right now with all of this very Christian stuff and nothing. Yeah. You know, there's there's some interplay. In, there's a space in the middle where it could just be a mention of Jesus, kind of mundane, saying things that people already believed. And then it's like, why, like you said, why mention it? You, know, yeah. you, you, you can't get fixated on the one. And if that's wrong, it's all wrong. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and, and another argument that, that Fitzgerald made was he says that the the passage, it, 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 it doesn't make sense in its context. He's talking about various calamities that have happened and then he talks about other calamities. And then in the middle, there's this, what I think what he called a, you know, an advert for, um, for Jesus. <laughs> and that doesn't make sense. Um, the problem with that is that Josephus had a highly, um, had, had a highly unusual style where he quite often would go off on a tangent. And then Squirrel. come. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> happens all the time. In fact, uh, I've, I've come, up, come up with a list of about eleven separate times where he does that. He seems to kind of he gets reminded of something, he goes off and does a little paragraph on that, and then he comes back. Um, so that's just his style. Does that mean that the thing isn't an interpolation? No, uh, that doesn't mean that. But it just means that that argument isn't as, as sharp as, as Fitzgerald likes to likes to make out. Yeah, when I was reading it myself originally, kind of in the context of Carrier's book, I was uh, I, I it looked it looks very out of place to me. If the only part of Josephus I've ever read is this one thing, it does seem kind of out of place. But then I looked at Josephus scholars, and they didn't seem to think it was weird. I was like, well, if they don't think it's weird, then it's probably not weird. You know, this is why. This is why because it's just his style, and, and this is the thing. You you, you have to actually have a, a, a understanding of context. And what I find is that people like Fitzgerald and you know, Godless Engineer and various others, um, when, when they, they make great pronouncements about Josephus, I say, well, have you actually read the whole thing? And usually they fumble around because usually they haven't. They've just, they've just read these bits. So it's a bit, it's a bit like creationists who, who get their whole understanding of evolutionary biology from other creationists and, and think that they've got rock-solid arguments until they come up against someone who actually knows something about evolutionary biology. It's a little bit like that. And if you kind of think back to what I've said so far, over and over again, the, you need to have a, a reasonable understanding of the linguistics, of the culture, of, of, the, of other sources, uh, of, of parallels, of analogies, to be able to see through the smoke and mirrors that, that basically is mythicism. So I, I will always say that mythicism is not an invalid idea. I would always say that it's at least possible that there was no such guy. But I don't think it's a good idea. I think, I think on the whole, if we go back to what I was saying right at the beginning, if you compare the layer cake of suppositions that is mythicism to the idea that there was a dude, the second idea makes much more sense, particularly once you start to understand that context, you understand what was going on with Jewish apocalyptic preachers at the time, what they believed, and then you sit down and read particularly the Gospel of Mark, bang, it's all there. Now, this guy is clearly he's saying the end of the world is coming in our lifetime. It's all there. What happens then, of course, is the Gospels then have to take a massage of that and turn him into the Messiah and then to eventually turn him into God and so on. And all that apocalyptic stuff, by the time he gets to the Gospel of John, it all starts to fall away. Yeah. 
But, well, by the time well, John was written, the world had failed to end for about yeah. 70 years. So. <laughs> so, they, so they had to reinterpret him. And they reinterpreted him as a saviour figure. And then eventually they reinterpreted him again as, as God in human form, which is what Christians believe today. So I've got, I've got a fairly detailed, I hope, fairly detailed article uh, that has won a bit of praise from, from some leading scholars summarising the idea of Jesus as an apocalyptic preacher. And I think one of the reasons that mythicism appeals to many lay people, particularly atheists, is that it answers the question of uh, how Christianity arose and and whether or not and, and who Jesus was. Well, it answers the question quite neatly. He wasn't. Right? There wasn't one. And and so when people are kind of coming out of belief in Christianity, they quite often go looking for an answer to that question. And if you get online and type in you know, who was Jesus or what was Jesus, you get one of two things. You tend to get uh, Christian polemic, Christian apologetics. He was the Lord and you must, you know, you must praise his name, etc. And mythicist stuff. There's not a hell of a lot of mainstream scholarship because mainstream scholars are busy and they don't have a, a lot of time to be, to be engaging with this stuff. But the problem is there's a vacuum there. And if, you, if you're walking away from Christianity, it's pretty easy to walk straight into uh, into mythicism, even though it's actually a pretty bad idea. What's a good segue too for uh, for us to plug that vacuum? Uh, I know you have a website where people can go and, and get some information. Uh, so I, I want to make sure we mention that again, so we don't forget that. So, um. so yeah, well, historyforatheists dot com or one word dot com, and there's a subsection there called Jesus Mythicism, uh, where I've got about seven or eight articles, you know, quite detailed articles on things like the Testimonium mm-hmm. and James and Brother of the Lord yeah. and so on. Uh, where I, I go into into a lot of technical detail, um, but there is also a, an article on Jesus, the apocalyptic prophet, where I where I kind of put Jesus into that context and try to help people to understand that that's who he most likely was. Because for me, I mean, I, I was raised a Christian; I wasn't a very fanatical one, but uh, I then went and started looking at the background to the origins of Christianity, and when I came across uh, this concept of Jesus as a Jewish apocalyptic prophet. It all, it all made sense. And, and one of the, the difficulties with um, historical Jesus studies, and this is something that's been observed 100 years ago by Albert Schweitzer, is that people who try to come up with who Jesus was tend to come up with mirror images of themselves. So Catholics go looking for the historical Jesus and just happen to find a guy who establishes a hierarchy and institutes sacraments and so on. In other words, Catholic Jesus. Protestants find a Protestant Jesus um, social uh, social uh, progressives find a, a hippie Jesus who is wanting to like love everyone. Um, and the thing I like about the apocalyptic prophet Jesus is that it doesn't it doesn't do that. You know, the apocalyptic Jesus is is weird and is uniquely first century, uniquely Jewish and first century. And and I think that that gives it a ring of authenticity. I, I and, definitely and it fits agree. with other sects that were going on in that time. Like there's theories that he could have been in a scene or related to the scenes at some point. But yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, we should expect that a religious leader in the first century should fit in his context, not ours. Yeah. Exactly right. Yeah, we'll put you. Well, uh, I'd like to recommend everybody go check out 
uh, Tim's website. I've used it a lot. It's extremely well researched and very easy to read. So he's got a lot of stuff there on Jesus. He's got some other myths there about uh, Christmas, which uh, by the time this aired will be a few days from now. So definitely yep. recommend you check that out too. It's not pagan spoiler. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So definitely check him out uh, for us moving into the near future. We are going to be doing our long awaited Shroud of Turin debunking next week. Uh, so look for that. And I think moving into the new year, we haven't set down a schedule, but I think what we're going to be doing, one of the things we're going to be doing is going through David Fitzgerald's book, kind of chapter by chapter, as long as people are interested in it. And, uh, or until we get burnt out. <laughs> or until we decide to, you know, <laughs> we've beaten our head against the desk long enough. Yeah. And uh, yeah. So look forward to that. Uh, please uh, leave a comment, like, subscribe, all the YouTube things, go check out Tim's stuff and uh, keep, uh, stay tuned for our next stuff. But until then, remember, you've always got reason to doubt. Peace out.